Let's pray, uh, shall we? And then uh, let's turn our attention to God's word. Father, we thank you that your word comes to us, not just like the other words of mankind, not like words of philosophy or words of other religious groups, but it comes to us as spirit and life. Your words to us are living words. And so we pray, Lord, as we hear them today, that they would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, that as we read this incredible account of your birth, Jesus Christ, that we, just like the angels, would be able to lift up a shout of praise because we're so full of joy at all that you have accomplished on our behalf. Amen. So this afternoon, we're going to focus in particularly on the 14th verse of what we've just read, which is glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's the new international version that I'm going to be using today. So we're going to be focusing in on that song of praise. The story of the birth of of Christ is something that we are all really familiar with, isn't it? We all know this story. It's been repeated over and over and over to us throughout the years of our lives. And we've probably heard these verses in Luke chapter 2 hundreds and hundreds of times. I'm sure you have. And I'm pretty sure that many of you, if put on the spot, could retell this story from memory, even without a Bible in your hands. You'd be able to tell me more or less what happened that night in Bethlehem. But I do want to say that just because something is familiar to you doesn't necessarily mean that you have an accurate knowledge of that thing, does it? Familiarity doesn't always mean that you have a good understanding of the thing that you are familiar with. Because you see, when stories, and particularly stories, when stories become well-known within a culture... They sort of take on a life of their own, don't they? They take on a life of their own. They become traditions. They become stories that were like in this country, the stories of King Arthur have become legend, haven't they? They take on an almost mythical status. And when we retell these famous stories, if we're not careful, we actually end up telling them through the lens of our own traditions, don't we? I'm going to just throw up an image on the screen for you, and I want you to read it. Can you see that? Those of you close to the front will be able to read it. It's a little word trick. After reading the, the sentence, you are now aware that the, the human brain often does not inform you that the the word, the, has been repeated twice every time. Because we naturally have an understanding. Our brain tells us what it should say, doesn't it? Even though that's actually not what it does say. And I think it shows us exactly how we can often superimpose our own traditions into the reading of Scripture. So unless we're really careful... In our study of God's word, we can actually miss what the text really says, can't we? For example, if you pick up 
a nativity card. I know that as Christians, many of us like to pick up a card at Christmas with a picture of the actual nativity on it, don't we? And send that out just to remind people of the real meaning of Christmas. And if you pick up a card, a nativity card, in your local card shop, you're likely to see a picture, aren't you, of Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus in a stable surrounded by animals. But Ian Paul, the Anglican theologian, has pointed out really well, in fact, Derek shared the post in the WhatsApp group recently. He pointed out that actually... Nowhere in scriptures does it explicitly say that Jesus was born in a stable. But we all believe that to be the case. But actually, when you read that account there, it doesn't actually say stable. It doesn't say he was born explicitly in a stable. Which is interesting, isn't it? It's a thing we read into the text because of what it says, where it says he was laid in a manger. There was no room at the inn. He was laid in a manger. So... We have understood that to mean that he was perhaps born in a stable. And that may be the case, but it doesn't say it in the text. It says that Jesus was wrapped and laid in a manger. The word is funny in Greek. It's fatne. That's what manger is in Greek, fatne. Yeah, you fatne. (laughs) So this fatne could have been, sounds like an insult, doesn't it? It's brilliant. It could have been like a kind of animal feeding trough with hay in it. But what we know now from archaeology is we roughly know how a first century Jewish house would have looked. And I've got a floor plan of one of them that I pulled from Ian Paul's article. I'm sorry the screen's not bigger. But this is a rough kind of floor plan of a first century Jewish house. And what you can see is that there are mangers that are actually built into the front of the house on the ground floor. These were little troughs that animals could come in and feed from. I can show you another picture here, which is more of a 3D uh, picture. Now, the mangers would have been somewhere around here. You can see that. So Jesus would have been laid in one of those feeding troughs, actually inside a house, not in a stable, most likely. And what else is interesting, and another kind of tradition that we often read into this story, is that we believe Jesus was born outside of a house because it says there was no room at the inn. That's what we've got in the ESV. There was no room at the inn, and therefore he was wrapped and laid in a manger. But again, on closer inspection in the text, what we find is that the Greek word that Luke uses for inn elsewhere in his gospel, isn't actually used here. And that's interesting, isn't it? Why would Luke, if he wanted to tell us that there was no room at the inn, why would Luke choose a word that he never uses elsewhere in his book to describe an inn? The word for inn is pandokian. He doesn't use that. He he uses a word, kataluma or katalima, depending on how you pronounce the Greek word. And that actually means guest room. It doesn't mean in. It means guest room. And the guest room, the kataluma, was up here, upstairs living space. So what Ian Paul says, and I think it's a good argument, is that actually what this text is telling us is that Joseph had relatives in Bethlehem. 
And that shouldn't be a surprise. He was from Bethlehem. That's where his family's from. He had relatives there. But by the time they arrived in Bethlehem at one of their relatives' houses, the Cataluma, the guest room, was already full. So they couldn't go in there. Instead, they had to take up space in the communal living space on the ground floor. There was no room for them in the guest room. Does that make sense? And so Jesus was born down here with the animals and with the people on the ground floor of the house and laid in the feeding trough. So you can see how easy it is for all of us to superimpose traditions onto very well-known stories. So if it's possible that we could read perhaps the most famous story of all time and still read our own traditions into it, how much more is that true of many of the other famous verses in Scripture? Brothers and sisters, how important is it for us to not just read the Word of God, but study it. But study it and to really try and understand and read through our traditional lenses. Let's move on, shall we? Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth. I love the accounts in Luke and Matthew of Christ's birth. Because they're so low-key. They're without fanfare, aren't they? It's literally just in a verse, and Jesus was born, effectively. There's no fanfare. There's no scramble outside of the door. The press, you know, sort of like positioning themselves for a photo with the happy parents, like a royal birth. There's no um, news headlines the next day in the Bethlehem Times. The fanfare isn't human. It's heavenly. It's not the people who are creating a fuss and a noise and a song and a dance about Jesus' birth. It's actually the angels who herald his coming. The greatest event in all of human history had just happened in Bethlehem. And practically the whole world missed it. Didn't see it as important. Didn't value it. The point I want to make, just really quickly, is that we should be really careful not to let the world and the media set our agenda. We've got to be careful not to let the world set our agenda, to tell us what's important, to tell us what should grab our attention and what's not of importance, or to tell us what we should celebrate, or to tell us what we should fear. Because the world hasn't got the greatest track record with those things, has it? The world missed the greatest event of all time. The New York Times didn't see it. The Guardian wasn't there on scene. Instead, the angels were there to herald it. Let's be more mindful about what God says should grab our attention in this world than we are about what the BBC says. Amen? Let's be attentive to what God's Word says. Let's be attentive to what he tells us we ought to celebrate, what ought to make us glad, and what ought to make us scared. Pay attention to God's word as to what he says is of value and what he says we should hold lightly. And so an angel appears to these humble shepherds on the hilltops above Bethlehem, and and they say the two words that are most often said when people encounter angels, fear not. Over 300 times that's said in the Bible. And every time when an angel shows up to one of God's people, fear not. Isn't that wonderful? 
And the angels appear not to governors, not to politicians, but to humble shepherds. And these humble shepherds become the first evangelists, don't they? Sharing this wonderful message. And after the angel has spoken and told them about the coming of Christ, we're told then that a great multitude of angels, hundreds of thousands of angels, appear and begin to say this song of praise. You can only imagine what that would have looked like. Hundreds of thousands of angels. And they say this Song. We always imagine them singing it, don't we? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace and goodwill to men. We just imagine that sight for those humble shepherds. Probably freezing, watching their sheep. And the arrival of the Son of God in the world means first and foremost glory to God, doesn't it? That's the first thing they say. The angels sing glory to God in the highest. That's what the Son of God coming into the world means. It means glory for God. J.C. Ryle, who was a bishop of Liverpool in the last century, said, His power was seen in creation. God's justice was seen in the flood. But his mercy remained to be fully revealed by the appearing of Jesus Christ. I love what the angels sing because it's the first proclamation of the gospel in Luke's gospel. And the first line is, glory to God. Salvation belongs to God, it says. And all glory belongs to him. And before we have anything to say about what Jesus does for us, we've got to first give glory to God for sending him in the first place. Spurgeon makes a really tongue-in-cheek, cheeky comment on this verse in one of his sermons. He says, that doctrine which glorifies man in salvation cannot be the gospel. For salvation glorifies God. The angels were not Arminians. They sang glory to God in the highest. (laughs) And then they say, and on earth peace. On earth peace. And in the New King James it says, and goodwill to men. The song of praise about the arrival of Jesus causes these angels to sing theology. Don't they say glory to God in the highest and then on earth peace to those who, upon whose God favor rests. You know, I think we could learn something in our worship songs from these angels. I think we could learn something. Our best hymns in the church, our best worship songs are when we put melody to our best theology unfortunately so much worship these days has just become repetition hasn't it kind of like pithy little statements but it's not meaty it's not theology but the angels sung theology that's what worship is it's a doxology the song looks upward first to God in the highest glory to him in the highest and then looks down to earth towards us, towards mankind, towards God's faithfulness and grace towards all of us, sinners. Now, what's interesting, and just take a moment to look at this as we draw to a close, is that I remember this verse as a child. There was a song 
that, that was built around this verse. It was glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men, something like that. And that's how I remember it. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's what the New King James says. That's what the King James says. But when you read other translations, you read the New International Version, it reads differently. It says, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Did you see that? It's not goodwill to men in general. It's on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Or the ESV says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, it's a slightly different translation. Instead of the goodwill, a general goodwill to all men, you've got this sense of God's peace or the peace of God being among, uh, upon those with whom God is pleased or upon those on whom God's favor rests. So why have we got a difference here? What's happening? Well, again, it's an interesting question for us. It's a question of textual criticism, which is the science of understanding what the Bible actually reads in the original languages. And this slight difference in translation all centers on one letter. On one letter. So in the... I'll bore you for a second with the details because it's interesting to me. But in the older manuscripts... This word that, that is translated goodwill in the New King James is eudokias, with a th on the end, a sigma. And that word translates as God's favor or God's goodwill. But in some of the later manuscripts, the word has no S on the end and is just eudokia, which just means general goodwill. Okay. The consensus now in the newer translations like the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, is that the proper word, the proper word there is with the S included, eudokias, not eudokia, which is where the King James gets his translation from. So the proper translation or the best translation of this verse is actually not the New King James. It's the NIV, which reads, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's a bit of a weird phrase. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. But what's more interesting is that actually scholars have found that that phrase is a very early Jewish idiom. You know what an idiom is? It's, it's like a saying, like a you know, thing that we say. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. But it's a very ancient Jewish saying. And it's, it's supposed to speak of God's grace, God's sovereign grace upon his chosen people. In fact, the, um, the Bible scholar Philip Ryken said, what the angels sing actually teaches the doctrine of election, believe it or not. The wording is important. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, or peace upon those on whom his favor rests. And according to another scholar, Daryl Bock, he writes, the phrase, with whom he is pleased, is a first century Judaic phrase, which means God's grace upon his people. 
that Christ came not to just give sentiments of goodwill to all people, oh, isn't that wonderful, but actually to give peace, real peace, to whom? To his chosen elect people. Now, don't get offended. Every time I say the word elect, I see bums shifting in seats. I'm not the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. If you have a problem with the word elect, you haven't read enough of the New Testament or of the church fathers because they called the church the elect of God. This is not some Calvinist doctrine. This is just the way that the apostles spoke about the church. It's the way the early church fathers spoke of the church. If you believe in Christ today, if you've chosen him as your Lord, the Bible says you're elect. You're chosen of God. So the two work together. Do you see what I mean? You choose Jesus in your heart. That means you're born again. That means you're elect. Amen. It's a weird one, but that's the way the Bible talks about it. So the angels are singing about peace on earth to God's chosen elect people who he came to save in Christ. And this makes it so much more powerful for me, this song, because we live in a time of war, don't we? If we believe in some general peace that Christ came to give. Yes, he came for all mankind. But what peace is there in the birth of Christ? We've got a war going on in the nations right now. We have a war going on in Ukraine. We have countless wars happening in the world simultaneously that we don't hear about, but they're happening. We have all sorts of horrible things going on in the world. So where is this peace that the angels sing about? What is this peace that the angels sing about? Well, I'll tell you where it is. This peace is upon God's church. It's upon your life. It's a peace, firstly, for all those who are in Christ. We talked about this before, haven't we? As Christians, we're not just people who go to church. We're not just people who believe a few things differently than the world does about the Bible. But we are people who are supernaturally positioned inside Christ. That's how the Bible talks about Christians. We are in him. Therefore, we receive all that's his. It's union with Christ. And this song tells us that all those who are in Christ will have peace, do have peace. Firstly, upwardly to God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. So firstly, if you're a Christian today, you have peace with God. The world, therefore, does not have peace with God. The only peace with God for any person is through Christ. There is no generic universal peace with God outside of Christ. Secondly, what peace do you have? You have peace with others. If you're a Christian today, if you're born again, you have peace with God. But we ought to have peace with our fellow humans. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults. Now that's a good word, isn't it? That's the NLT translation. I like that. Make allowance for each other's faults 
I need to remind myself of that every day. Because on our street, let me tell you an example. On our street, we live on a little cul-de-sac. And I think we're the only family that has just one car. Everyone else has like two cars, some three. So finding a parking space is not always easy. Plus, we've got a school at the end of the road. So during the week, there's students and teachers parking up there too. So sometimes you have to parallel park. And then you get in trouble because you're blocking the road. And I really struggle to make an allowance for other people's faults in the parking area. But brothers and sisters, if we've been forgiven, shouldn't we also forgive? If God has made an allowance for your faults, shouldn't you also make an allowance for your brother's fault, for your sister's fault, for your neighbor's faults? Paul says, forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Today, are you sat in this place with offense in your heart towards someone else? Then we've got license today to make peace with them, to forgive that offense, to make an allowance for people's faults. Do you have faults? It's just me then, is it? I have faults, and I need you to make an allowance for me. And I need to make an allowance for you. Can we do that? I don't want for us to leave today without making ourselves right with anybody who we need to extend forgiveness to. I want for us to have peace with others this Christmas. If there's a family member that you don't talk to, that you've fallen out with, maybe pray and see if this year is the right time to make peace with that person. Thirdly, we have inner peace given to us because of Jesus. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I love this word. We can have an inner peace. Despite everything else that's going on in the world, everything that the world is throwing at us right now, telling us to be scared about, we as Christians can have an inner peace. We can have joy this Christmas. How many of you would like permission to be joyful this Christmas? I would like permission. You can have permission to be joyful. Not because all the circumstances in the world line up so that we can actually say, well, I can be joyful today because my bank account's looking healthy. My house is warm. I don't have to worry about bombs falling on my house. I can be joyful. Do you know, there's never going to be a day when you're able to make every circumstance line up. To give you joy. We live in a broken world. But we can have joy in Christ. We can have joy because he came. Took on human flesh. You know God took on flesh. That means God identifies with us. That means God identifies with us in our suffering. And that means he'll be united to humanity forever. There's nothing that we go through alone in this world. And I think living with eternity in mind, living with the idea that this isn't all there is, but you will have a life in eternity, living with that in mind is going to help you have peace. It's going to help you have joy. Let's not be miserable this Christmas. Amen? Let's give ourselves permission to be joyful. I think it's probably one of the most rebellious things you can do these days is in the face of all of the junk, you can be joyful. That's what a rebel does these days. A rebel gets married. A rebel follows the Lord. A rebel goes to church. 
A rebel has peace. A rebel has joy. A rebel fights sin. You want to be a rebel? Follow God's word. I'm right. (laughs) I know I'm right on this. Too many people miss the point here. They think that they're being rebellious, that they're being a, I don't know, like a maverick by rejecting the word of God. You know, if you, if you follow God's word these days, you're in the minority. You are in the minority. This is not a Christian nation anymore. If you want to believe this and obey this, you are a rebel. I want to see a few more rebels in this city who will believe God's word as it is and have joy and have peace in the face of suffering, in the face of hopelessness, to be kind, to be forgiving in a world that is full of offense and hatred. You can be a rebel by loving your enemy. You can be a rebel by loving the poor, by allowing for others' faults. Amen? Let's rebel by following Jesus. Obedience to God is rebellion against the world. Did you know that? Hallelujah. Obedience to the world is rebellion against God. Let's pray. I'm going to get the worship band up. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to be obedient to you and how to have joy at this time of year. Help us to revel in the birth of Christ. It's such a familiar story. It's such a familiar story to us, Lord, that sometimes we miss the point. But Lord God, we want to be as joyful and as happy as those angels thinking about when you came to save us. Lord, if there are anyone here today, if there's anyone here today who, Lord... um, needs to experience your peace. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and just begin to touch them right now. If you know you don't know Jesus today, if you know you're not sure that you have peace with God in this moment, I want you to just fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at yourself. Don't look inwards and think about all your failings and your faults. Instead, look to him, the author and perfecter of faith. Look to him for hope. Look to him for forgiveness. If you're here today and you know you need to forgive somebody, you, need, you know you need to allow grace for somebody's faults, ask help from God. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to forgive when somebody's done wrong. But ask the Lord to help you at this time of year to extend forgiveness when somebody's wronged you. And finally, if you're here today and you're feeling stressed, worried, hopeless and scared, Lord, we pray that your inner peace would come and touch hearts this afternoon. In Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand and we sing a final carol?